Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mark Blick, and you know I'm going to laugh when I get to Jessica's name, right? Because of that conversation we had before. The CEO at Diginex Solutions, and Jessica Camus, the head of ESG and public affairs at Diginex Solutions as well. Thank you both for joining today. How are you guys doing? Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to back. Doing very well, thank you, here in Hong Kong today. I'm Michael. I'm, I'm doing really well. It's, it's a real pleasure to be on the podcast. Thanks for inviting Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. So Mark and I actually did this about a year ago. So I'll let him kind of slide for now. But Jessica, since you're new to this, why don't you give us a little bit of your background for some context? Sure, Michael. Um, so I'm originally from Haiti. I grew up in Switzerland and studied international relations here in Geneva, where I'm based, um, given my interest in development issues. I joined Thomson Reuters Financial Markets, but actually really quickly transitioned to work at the World Economic Forum where I was focused on facilitating public-private partnerships and shaping the agenda of global companies with a focus on entrepreneurial ecosystems and women's economic empowerment. After seven years at the forum, I left the organization and turned to advise a number of international organizations and corporates, primarily in, in emerging markets, on social impact strategies, impact investments in ESG. And actually, one of the issues I observed was the lack of scalability that a lot of these actors had and the difficulties of measuring impact. So for that reason, I decided to explore how technology and, and specifically blockchain technology could offer new and innovative solutions. So I was really pleased to join Mark uh, and, and his team in 2018, where he had just started to work on leveraging blockchain to address issues of modern slavery, supply chain transparency, and social governance. And we have since been working really closely on scaling up implementation across multiple geographies and expanding the use of the tool Diginex Trust to serve the broader space um, of impact um, and ESG and collection. So can you tell me, because you originally went into Thomson Reuters, you said, right? And Mark, we'll get back to you in a second. What, what got you so interested in social impact, uh, measuring impact, impact investing, that type of stuff that made you just leave? How did that start? I was always interested in, in impact, but I think um, I really saw some of the challenges that, that the market had in terms of misalignment when it comes to speaking a common language. So the development space uses a very different terminology as opposed to the social impact space when it comes to impact investors or, or large corporates. And also the lack of data. So looking at the same set of data is, is, is just a critical issue if you want to understand what the investments are driving in, in terms of the impact on the ground. So there's just a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done in order to create the right infrastructure that brings the different market actors together and, and align them better around data and evidentiary documentation when it comes to impact and impact measurement. Okay, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? So you have like these two or three sides that are all looking at the same problem, but not looking at the same data and not looking at the same infrastructure and trying to maybe attack it from a different perspective. You can kind of get everybody to meet in the middle and then we can talk yeah. about scale too using blockchain as well. But if you can get everyone to meet in the middle, you should have better outcomes, particularly when it comes to the things that you're trying to, for lack of a better word, impact. Does that make sense? That makes perfectly sense. And a lot of these big solutions require multiple stakeholders to collaborate. Yeah. So a lot of 
what we focus on in terms of technology, it's, it's actually a collaboration tool. Um, it's helping to bring different folks from different sectors together. That's why I spent some time at financial markets um, and, and, and time at, uh, at WEF that facilitates those public-private partnerships because ultimately these solutions need to be driven across industries and, and across sectors. Yeah, and across different interests as well. Very interesting. Mark, we, like we said, we spoke about a year ago. I think I went back and looked at it. It was probably almost exactly 12 months ago. And I want to find out what's changed at Diginex. I, I feel like, at least based on the conversations we've had offline, that a lot has changed. So what's new? Thanks, Michael. So, uh, yeah, it was exactly about a year ago. And um, I think since then, two or three things which, which have changed before we go through those is to, to uh, level set on where we were coming from. Um, right. Uh, back in 2017, 18, as, as working at a, as a blockchain technology company, we were, we were very keen to find, oh, identify fundamentally good projects, that is projects with a good purpose that helped us validate the technology. And that was in response to misconceptions at the time and even still today about the technology and what it does. And, and for us, we wanted to align with our core belief, which we still hold today in the efficacy of good and the conviction that associated well-governed company is the strongest indicator of a well-run company. As you remember, around that time, we were introduced to the Mekong Club, and we went deep on this issue of social governance, forced labor, modern slavery. I think when we were speaking to you last year, probably we were working in one or two countries. Now we're working in eight countries across Asia and the Middle East. So I think the, the main changes that have happened are, one, our work with in social governance and forced labor has really expanded. And we're working across both uh, direct private projects with some of the world's largest multinational companies like Coca-Cola. We're working with the United Nations on a series of different projects throughout the region and working on projects which are funded by the U.S. or U.K. governments in, in Bangladesh, Philippines and elsewhere. So that that vein of looking at, at social governance, forced labor and, and modern slavery is, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, in finding an area and going narrow and deep on that. And we will continue do so. And we have somebody fantastic who's going to be joining the company on August the 6th, who comes from a long history of helping to identify cases of uh, forced labor and private sector supply chains. On the other hand, we've expanded the platform, and Jessica referenced it just now, this platform, Diginex Trust, and I think she's best placed to go into it in more detail. But I mean, we, we are a we are a data infrastructure company, and we focus on the development of software to improve data-driven decisions. Initially, those were data-driven decisions around forced labor and modern slavery, but but we've expanded that to to encompass the full remit of ESG. I mean, at the heart of that is really transparency and immediacy, and leveraging our platform to drive meaningful change. Certainly, a lot of the feedback that we have received across both public and private sectors, uh, and we hit this again and again, there's been a sense of frustration about the stale data that's currently supplied about once a year that's often made it difficult to do yearly comparisons, but so much changes within, within 12 months. And on the flip side, we've often found companies that were willing to supply information if it helps them demonstrate better, better governance, but they lack a reliable and contextually suitable platform to do so. And that's why we've been building out this data infrastructure that collects surfaces and shares data amongst the complex ecosystem of stakeholders in a, in a more transparent and immediate way. And then from a, from a company perspective, um, we uh, when we were speaking last time, that was as part of Diginex, Diginex Limited, that company that continues a path towards its, its listing of NASDAQ in September. But for us, if we go back, let's say, 18 months ago or maybe even longer, it became very clear at the time that there were those investors who um, – we're very focused on digital assets and financial services who couldn't work out what Jessica and I were doing running around with 
I think it's a government focus on on, uh, on ESG and, and and modern slavery. And then conversely, there were there were company there were funds and, and potential partners that loved what we do, but weren't weren't that incentivized by digital assets and cryptocurrencies. And so in in this year, we we divested Diginex Solutions, which is where where Jessica and I sit. So we are now our own standalone company, focusing entirely on. ESG, social governance and data infrastructure, and Diginex Limited, which focuses entirely on crypto assets and uh, digital assets. Um, and those two companies going, going their two different ways, but we still remain very close. Okay, but that's interesting. I guess the point is that <clears throat> at some level, you would go to potential partners and they'd say, wait, you're part of this cryptocurrency thing that either A, we don't understand, or B, we think it's a little bit shady. And you're like, no, we're not doing that. We're just using the same technology to be able to create a data infrastructure to make sure that we can enable you to do the things around transparency, immediacy with forced labor and modern slavery and the efficacy of good that we can use to help you. They were like just too confused to, to figure it out at some level. A little bit. And I think if I, I mean, as as an early employee of Diginex Limited at the time, it was new. We were trying to to demonstrate the benefits of technology, both within adoption from a public-private partnership perspective, but also within a financial assets perspective. Right, um, right. But we, and we hired a whole bunch of great people, Jessica being a great example of that, and also on our financial services to pursue those two goals. And, and, we, and they went and achieved great things. And so those two paths, I think, started to diverge. I think that the cleanliness around narrative was very important. So if you go to the website and you, you see news story on the one hand launching a new custody service for digital assets, on the other hand, partnering with the United Nations to drive up um, ethical standards, um, ethical recruitment standards amongst recruitment agencies globally. It's, it, it was quite difficult to sort of match those two narratives up. Yeah. Um, and the conversations we were having, it made, it made a lot more sense to, to separate them. Can you talk about a little bit about the data that you're gathering? I just want to get a better understanding because, I mean, everyone that I talk to has this sort of idea that everything that they do should be data-driven. But what's the data you as a team are trying to gather? And then how do you use that to help so make, help I, you make I, better decisions? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I can answer part of that. And then I'll pass over to Jessica please, please. to give the, the more fully rounded response on the ESG side of it. With regards to uh, the work that we do on social governance, um, and again, at the heart of everything we do, we're a data infrastructure company. And it, we start with this, this concept of document handling and data provenance. And so from a migrant worker's perspective, from documents, there's things like contracts, visas, receipts for agency fees that they've paid, visas, and being able to have one place where they can, they can share that documentation and get approval and so on and so forth. And that's really where we started. But then we quickly evolved into whilst we're doing this. And I think probably, Michael, when we were speaking last year, we had this hypothesis of, well, whilst you're collecting this, this certification of document process, you, you can also ask a bunch of questions. And at the time, we had a hypothesis that you couldn't ask more than five questions or people just got a little bit bored and didn't, didn't finish the process. Right. And we've really refined that now. So we're collecting, as part of a standard onboarding process, we're collecting up to 35 data points around migrant workers in under six minutes. Wow. And this is, this is either just straight up demographic data, so gender, age, uh, country of origin, and so on and so forth. But, but also, and perhaps equally interesting, it's information that would help companies demonstrate their adherence to particular ESG reporting indicators. Um, and this is where I think I can pass over to Jessica a little bit, but to allow companies to demonstrate to regulators and the civil society and to investors that, that they're collecting data from the front line of, of their supply chains um, and using that to demonstrate 
um, adherence to specific disclosure requirements. Awesome. Jessica, do you want to jump in and kind of fill in some gaps? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited about this project um, and, and launch of what will become the first blockchain-enabled SaaS solutions. Diginex Trust so to improve the tracking and reporting of ESG data. So essentially what we are offering is an infrastructure platform which helps companies um, to drive operational efficiencies when it comes to ESG data collection, both within its internal structures and across supplier networks, and ultimately share the data that's being surfaced with asset managers together with supporting documentation. So the platform will reflect the global reporting frameworks that are already in the market. So we are not reinventing, um, you know, a new framework of how or what data companies should be collecting, right. but we actually integrate with existing um, recognized frameworks, such as the framework used by the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI. Um, and that's currently being used already by 93% of the world's largest uh, 250 companies. Really? Yeah. And we're also integrating with the United Nations, SDGs, I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and some uh, reporting frameworks like uh, the one issued by the Global Impact Investing Network. It's called IRIS Plus um, and the UN, uh, UN Principles for Responsible Investments. So there are tons of actually really good reporting frameworks out there. Um, but the issue or one of the issues is that there is no harmonization of these reporting frameworks. So companies um, are really struggling due to the increasing demand for ESG data reporting to, you know, more efficiently uh, report across the different indicators and also convert the information from one indicator to another. So that's really where um, our technology comes in. It's to help facilitate both the data collection, but also the conversion from one indicator to another, and for investors then to have a better view on the individual data points. Um, so not just looking at large uh, public uh, aggregated data information, for example, you know, there, there are a lot of providers that offer aggregated scores. Mm. We want to go beyond that and say, you as an investor, you can look at an aggregated number, but you can go a step further to actually drill down and look at an individual indicator and request supporting documentation or, you know, run a survey with the company to understand what some of the concerns in, for example, high risk areas are, and also share this information with third parties uh, like auditors or, or experts that can give an external view to validate that the information that a company is reporting is accurate. Yeah. And look, I don't want to talk about causality or coincidence, right? But do you see a trend, I don't know, say over the last three or five years of companies being legitimately interested actually in having this data so that they can actually make better decisions around their ESG stuff, their environmental decisions, their social decisions and their government's decision, governments, excuse me, decisions, right? And are they getting pushed by investors as well, right? Because most corporates are just self-interested. They just want to make more money, but they also want to have high stock price. I'm just curious, like if you see a change over the past few years in the way they're approaching this? In other words, making the stuff that you're doing more impactful. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, pressures are coming from multiple sources. As you said, they want to use the information for better decision making. Yeah. There are consumer pressures um, uh, and, you know, reputational issues that come with bad behaviors um, and, and loss in terms of profits. Um, the asset managers and in, in finance sector is a really important incentives for companies to become better um, in, in terms of um, improving their impact reporting and also offering uh, you know, uh, more uh, qualitative, higher uh, data. 
and and then there are legislatory pressures that that Mark referenced earlier. So on the social governance side, you had a bunch of national anti-slavery laws being issued, the Francis Duty of Vigilance Law, the UK Modern Slavery Act. But also um, more broadly, you see some of these legislations, such as the EU Action Plan on Sustainable Finance, that is actually, um, you know, includes a set of regulations on sustainability related disclosures in the financial services sector. And that's, that, that's, that's really driving change now. Um, and companies are starting to take their um, reporting really, really serious. That's awesome. Mark, do you want to add anything? I think the, 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 the question of uh, stakeholder engagement is, is critical on this. And some, certainly something we've learned over the past two years is, I mean, we look at it from, from a scale of left to right. On the left, you have grassroots. And I think that's really where we started. So from a social governance point of view, that's engaging with workers and factory managers. And then you go through this sort of levels of influence. You have from the left and you start working with civil society, United Nations, governments, and then you work with companies. And then you start looking at, at asset managers. And then ultimately you start looking at um, large sovereign wealth funds and uh, and pension funds. And a couple of examples I can give on this with, with regards to social governance in particular. Please. In November last year, you had the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, so a $1.1 trillion fund, divest entirely out of G4S over cases of human rights abuse in the Middle East. And then just this week, I don't know if you've been following, there's a, um, and this really speaks to the, the impact of COVID on, on accelerating yeah, the lens of the federal government. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So you have, in, in the UK, they, I think they're, they're, they're decreasing the, the infection rate, but recently there's been a massive spike in a, in a town called Leicester. And they investigated this and they found out that much of this came from sweatshops in Leicester where people were packed in with no, no health care. Uh, with no well, little health care protection, um, paid beneath the minimum wage, not taken care of, and so on and so forth. The company that was ultimately responsible for this, um, they've lost £1.5 billion in the past two days of their share value, which stock prices dropped 33%. And they've been, they've been dropped by a number of, the, of leading high street brands who source clothes from them. So th this pressure you get from a consumer point of view, but also that investor point of view, and I'm sure for these guys, ultimately legislative and regulatory, is really is really impactful in driving this change. And we always looked for what is the impetus to change, because otherwise it's very difficult to, to enact change. Yeah. I think all of these different stakeholder groups, and I think if you, people on the left-hand side of that, workers and factory managers and civil society, they always knew and were aware about this issue, that the acceleration is these conversations you're having that unless you can demonstrate good social governance there is a real risk that things can go south very quickly and suddenly you're losing 33 percent of your share price value or suddenly the large sovereign wealth fund isn't divesting entirely because of lack of transparency and a lack of immediacy in the data that you're capturing from your front line and social governance and, and COVID-19 and it's, it's increased lens on um, worker welfare, healthcare and how people are, getting, are being treated um, is accelerating that, that, that dynamic. Can, can you talk a little bit about, at least more specifically about the supply chain, right? I think this is something that most people don't think about and we may have actually talked about this last year. I'm trying to remember, right? But like if there's some kind of good or service or it's mostly a good right but like if there's a cotton picked somewhere and then it turns into a t-shirt it doesn't go directly from being cotton to being a t-shirt that's why i want to talk about this supply chain because along the way it touches a lot of people and how do you check along that <clears throat> along that route along that chain particularly with the employment of blockchain technology we can talk about that as well about 
where the forced labor abuses are taking place and where the modern slavery abuses are taking place and where just the fact that people aren't getting paid for the value that they're creating in the chain and all the value gets created at the end of the chain. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a very complex and difficult challenge. And it's something that we've been approaching from both ends. So the, the one side, you can approach it from top down, which is a large company has or, or factories in which um, either they franchise or they own themselves and they're manufacturing in those facilities. And we help collect data from the factory level. Right. And that has challenges in and of itself. But ultimately, you're, you're probably in a large air-conditioned factory and it's, it's easy to convene large groups of workers. And, and, and there it's about how do you collect sentiment analysis? So how do you understand how workers are feeling over periods of time and then being able to understand is sentiment increasing or decreasing? And if it's decreasing, they're trying to dig down and understand why. But often, and I think we covered this last year, often many of the cases of false labor are happening way before somebody arrives in the factory and often yeah. it's this pre-departure process. In Bangladesh, they have this fly now, pay later initiative where migrant workers are being enticed to fly to the Middle East to secure a role and pay for it later. But of course, the payment comes with very punitive interest rates. Um, so that's where we start working, particularly with governments and civil society to engage with workers, pre, even pre-decision and pre-departure. And a lot of that is around learning and education and being able to um, collect information to understand what are the most likely levels of exploitation that are happening at that level. And once you can start creating these corridors for integrity, so let's say we'll be, we're going to be working between the Philippines, pre-departure, pre-decision, going into Middle East, working in the hospitality industry. And once we've created, let's, it's never going to be perfect transparency, but once we've created greater transparency, then getting private sector, large multinational companies who are working in the Middle East, more inclined to to look for migrant workers through specific corridors where there are greater levels of transparency will help to reduce the overall rates of exploitation. Yeah, I mean, look, we see a great example of this in Thailand, right? I mean, I, li I live in Bangkok, but across the Burmese border into Thailand, there are tons of migrant workers that go back and forth, and they run into some of the same exact problems that you're talking about, where the Filipino workers, or mostly Filipino workers, go to the Middle East and participate in the hospitality industry. Yeah. Um, right. I'm really curious, and, and maybe, Jessica, you can address this from a platform perspective, right? But how exactly, exactly, it's maybe too strong a word, but like, how does the platform use the data, connect to the companies, right? And then allow the workers and the companies both to make these better decisions. Um, well, I would say one principle that we have is that we are designing the platform in a, in a very human centric way. So no matter um, how far we move up or closely uh, integrated with, with the company, we, we try to preserve that worker voice component throughout. So, on, on the individual level, workers have the um, ability to onboard onto an app and store their worker documentation, whether it's visas, passports, <clears throat> or uh, work contract in, on, on the blockchain uh, or on, on the app um, with a link to the blockchain and therefore have the information uh, stored in a very secure way. On the company side, the factory manager or the, um, for example, human rights, CSR or head of HR sitting at the, at the global headquarter that we also engage in the process has the ability to access 
dashboards, essentially, so analytics dashboards, um, and view how individuals are being integrated into their supply chains from a from a labor employment perspective, to view metadata that can be qualitative, but also view what Mark was referencing more of a sentiment um, analysis to actually request information like, are the individuals pleased to work in a certain environment? Questions around their uh, worker or employment journey. So whether or not um, the individual has paid uh, a fee when, when accessing the job um, or whether they have access and permanent access uh, to their passports. So just a, a, a quite a robust series um, of, of customizable questions that will allow them to have that, that view on what's actually happening right that further down um, in in their supply chain and in their supplier networks uh, and view this information on a, on a real time basis. It, it sounds maybe simple, but no, it it's, doesn't it's sound simple. At all. It's very well, complex. Was, actually, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, when I was starting, I I, I was really thinking that companies had had already quite a good understanding of what was happening in their supply chain, but the the baseline is so low. So visibility over who their suppliers are, that's that's actually the first step. And many um, com- many companies are still stuck at just mapping out their supplier networks. But going a step further to know the individual or know groups of individuals and having a better sense of the demographics um, and also of their experiences and even having the ability to engage them on an, on an individual basis to and question um, their health and well-being. It's it, it's 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 quite revolutionary. We we hope to create some real impact um, with with this solution in the space. So can I? I like to sort of simplify everything down. Let's say I'm a migrant worker, right? And I have all my documents stored: my visa, my passport, some you know, gender, age, demographic information stored in a blockchain that I have on my phone or on some other mechanism. Yeah. And then the company has to provide me with a work contract and all these other things, but it also has to go over that blockchain so that it can be verifiable and unchanged, yeah? And that means then that if I, if there's a contract there that I, when I get on the plane, if I have to pay later, that all of that stuff is, <clears throat> is already built into some kind of Ethereum, and I'm making it up because I don't know, some kind of smart contract. And that means that I can't be messed with. In other words, when I get off the plane, when I do my work, I get paid. I have my airline, my return ticket home that's already stored in that thing. And then if anything bad happens, that thing, or if I do what I'm supposed to do and it's measurable, then that smart contract just executes and I cannot get any of that stuff taken away from me post-job. Does that make sense? I know I'm really simplifying it, right? But that could also help you then control what's happening along that entire supply chain and let people know what's going on there. Is that the kind of stuff that you're trying to implement at some level? Yeah, I think from the migrant point of view, it's certainly about data ownership Um, and knowing that rather than carrying around photocopies of passports or rather than having contracts which get substituted on multiple multiple occasions, I have a series of documentations which have been verified, which, which I can always access so long as I have an internet connection. So that's on one side. On the company side, it's a lot of it is around mitigation of risk. So if I am a large apparel manufacturer and I am manufacturing in, in thousands, if not over 10,000 different locations globally, I don't possibly have the ability to go and audit all of these all of these locations. And even when I am auditing, at best, it's a once or twice a year exercise. So how do I start categorizing risk and then how does that inform action? So on the far right-hand side, you're going to have, I have great transparency. Each time I spot check this data, because data by itself is fine, but you still need to spot check it. I, I always like 
idea of trust but verify. So each time I trust but verify, it checks out, and I have a low instance rate of anomalies. Well, that, that informs me that I should be working with folks in this category. At the other end of the scale, I have no transparency, or each time I trust and verify, each time I spot check it, it doesn't, it doesn't check out. And that, that's a red flag. So either I don't work with these companies or I, I have to go every quarter to make sure I'm doing capacity building and skills training and make sure that they, what they say is happening is actually happening. And then categories two and three in between, you have different shades of that. So I look at it in terms of this, this con construct. You have factual information which you believe you know to be true. So that's information which you've been told and someone signed a piece of paper and put a stamp on it. And maybe you went to check it out once a year as part of an onboarding process or KYC process, and on occasion it checked out. What you're lacking is the transactional information, which should reconcile to that factual information. And the transactional information should be on this, maybe not quite real time, but that bite-sized weekly, monthly collection of data, which should roll up and reconcile to the factual information that you have on a piece of paper. And that's what we're capturing, is that transactional behavioral information which informs companies of their risk. It also allows, let's say I'm an asset manager and I want to understand the risk exposure of my portfolio to forced labor. I can then identify specific indicators that I am most interested in and surface up data related to those. For example, GRI 409 related to forced labor, an asset manager would request the company report on those indicators and su submit supporting documentation, um, for example, on fees or overtime pay calculations. And on the other side, where we really always started from was, was, was to go back to the initial point, the perspective of a migrant worker and having, and we've run multiple surveys of worker engagement surveys with, with migrant workers that we've engaged with as we roll out our platforms is do, do you like this? What, what benefits do you see? Do you not like it? And so on and so forth. And resoundingly, the feedback is it's great to have one place where which we know is secure, where we can place information, which actually is a two-way flow of information. It's not only is it their information, which they will always have and always retain, but it's also companies' ability to send information to them, so health and safety policies or whatever it may be, that companies can then retract upon upon ending of that employment contract. So it's, it's solving for, I, I like to think of it in terms of it's, the technology, of course, is crit critically important. And we, we are a deep tech company that have a lot of very, very, very strong technologists here. But ultimately, we're solving for these two questions, which is, does this make my life easier? And does this make my life safer? And, yeah. and that's what we those two things, that's what we want to solve for, particularly within the social governance thing. And then the work that Jessica is doing on, on ESG, it's, it's very much focused on the, does this make my life easier? And we're working currently with a, with a UK publicly listed company. And they're not, I don't think they're, they're an exception in this, that is doing a lot of their ESG reporting on a, on a, a very large, unwieldy Excel spreadsheet with multiple tabs <laughs> sent sure. around for from people in, inside and extra outside the company and then ultimately get sent to primary shareholders who think, well, how do I know where this comes from? Um, so being able to have multi-party verification and collection of this data, um, align it to specific indicators and allow the board, the CEO and, and primary shareholders to have visibility on this process from, from, from the start. Jessica, can I ask you a question as well, just on this same topic? Um, I want to get back to partnerships in a second and maybe you can comment on that when you're done with this. But if I'm a migrant worker in the old days, right, if I have no technology and no connectivity to the companies for whom I'm going to be working, let's say, I, I may just get dragged into a situation that I don't understand before I go there. But now this whole idea of social reputation or even scoring means that it's going to be harder for the companies that are, again, I'll use, you know, terrible words, but like that are mucking around 
and mistreating yeah. and mistreating their workers to be able to hire people at any level because no one's going to want to go there because they're going to know it's dangerous before they get there. And again, I'm simplifying, but does this technology as well help the workers? So I can see where it helps the companies for sure. I can see where it helps the investors in these companies because, like you said, they can get the reporting on it very quickly because they can understand all the data around it. But all the way back down to the workers that are there too, they can just look. They must be able to look at some of the data you're gathering and say, there's no way I'm working for a company whatever XYZ because every report that we get from them is terrible. Mm, that's an that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I I think where we have come so far is giving migrant workers the ability to express grievances. So the grievance mechanism application of the tool is is an important one. So which means that migrants are not being requested on the spot by a company to report issues, but can proactively raise issues of of, of their concerns. And that can be anything from you know I'm not happy with with the meal that I'm being served to really serious issues of of exploitation or or sexual harassment. Um, so that's a, that that's a, a, a very important component. Um, going as far as to f- reflect that information in aggregated ways back to the workers, mm. I think it's something that will come in the future. Um, we, we haven't implemented it yet. Also, given some of the, let's say, sensitivities that come around the individual reports and just making sure that at this stage, when grievances are being raised, we put in place the partnerships that are necessary on the ground to deal with those um, concerns in a in a timely and an appropriate and, and safe way. I think that's where our focus is today. Um, but in the next couple of years, yeah, it could be a very interesting evolution to think about almost like a, you know, this glass door type component of saying, well, migrant workers report their experiences and why not yeah. reflect that to them in terms of, um, you know, uh, supplier uh, ratings. Yeah, and again, there are always problems around ratings and stuff, right? There's got to be a way to make them better. But I do think it's it's indicative and informative, particularly in this case, to let people know where it is and where it isn't safe. I want to ask you a little bit about the partnerships you were talking about. What is it like when you go out, I mean, just from a pure business perspective, to go out and find a partner, get a partner, and to, you know, to convince people to come and work with you and work on the system, right? How long does that normally take, and what is the incentive for them to do that? I think we, well, we are building partnerships at, at many different levels. Yeah. It, it, it um, on, you know, on the ground, working with local organizations that really well know their their context, are familiar with with the workers, and also have the trust with, with the workers. So, as coming in with new technology solutions, I think we are being very welcomed because a lot of them, as I said earlier in the introduction, are, are struggling to bring some of their solutions to scale. So, having yeah. technology in their hand, but still being highly relevant for the, the configuration of the technology and also the onboarding and training and capacity building component on the ground um, that, that that will always be the value add of local organizations and and we very heavily rely on them so getting them on board is is, is not a is not a particular concern in terms of the engagement of, of companies I think what we are um, leading with when we approach companies is really a, a deep understanding of the or deeper quite a deep understanding for a tech company, understanding of the issue. Rather than saying, look, we have this you know, fancy piece of technology, blockchain, um, and here's all that blockchain can do. It's about, um, well, us having spent quite a lot of time educating ourselves of what the specific issues are, understand, you know, 
what the different actors in in the market play as a as, as a role and where we can fill some 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 gaps so taking that issue led approach i think has been you know quite a successful um, way of engaging companies when uh, looking at the opportunities of scaling the the, the technology across their supply chains yeah that's um, been been our lead Sorry, I think you make a really good point. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think you make a really good point. And that is some of these companies in a way don't even care what the back end infrastructure driving technology yeah. is as long as it solves their problem. And I think that's true whether it's TCP IP or whether it's blockchain. Is that fair? That's 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 exactly right. I mean, we can we always get to a point where our product team and our CTO will speak to the the technical team um, at at the global corporate. So you know that happens typically a, a couple weeks or, or months in when we start engaging with the with the global partners, and it's a it's a necessary conversation to have to ensure that um, we're exploring um, all possible options of also integrating the technology into some of the existing tech infrastructures that those companies have as we want to really lower um, uh, barriers for for adoption um, but the, the but the important conversations to start with are either with the um, you know sustainability teams human rights teams but also the procurement teams um, and, and and at CEO level it's, it's important that we get you know the the, the CEO um, or let's say board buy-in or that 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 the individual that's driving these initiatives in these organizations has that buy-in to really set up these projects with a, a path to scale as opposed to a small a small scale you know project or use case look i want to ask you both and either one of you can jump in and answer this but i want to ask you one more question and i'll let you go because i've taken up a bunch of your time i'm just curious i want to look at this from a really high level global perspective but do you see regional differences in the way that companies and societies are responding to these problems of modern slavery and forced labor? Or is it generally accepted across the entire world as kind of the same thing? Do you see regional differences? I, I think you see, and we look at this a lot, I think you, you look at the sort of the cross-sector <laughs> section of the industry risk and then also the sector risk, and then try and identify who's going to be particularly sensitive to that, particularly if it's a consumer, it's a consumer facing industry. So we look at which which industries are most likely to have high prevalence in cases of forced labor and modern slavery. So let's just say agriculture. But then you also look at the country intersection. So let's say in in some countries, the, the cases of forced labor and modern slavery within agriculture are going to be um, much more likely than in others. And that's where we'll focus in. We'll also look at, in terms of responsiveness, what what are the drivers, go back to the impetus to change, what are the drivers for people to care about it? Now, we all wish that companies always cared about it, but sometimes they require a, a gentle um, guiding. Yeah, to, and there you like, let's say you're an Australian company or any company in Australia with over $100 billion of Aussie and uh, Aussie dollar revenue, you're now subject to new disclosure requirements around modern slavery given uh, with the regulation that came out last year that came into effect this year. Um, so that's going to cause companies to behave in a different way. You have the EU min- conflict minerals um, disclosure requirements, which are coming into effect next year, which again is going to drive transparency around sourcing 3GT from conflict areas around uh, human rights disclosure. So again, that's going to cause companies to behave in a different way. So the intersection of the industry, of the sector, 
the country in which it's it's in, and then what causes companies to behave a different way. Now, the good news that we, we believe is that these impetus to changes are increasing, and either from a regulatory point of view or an investor point of view or a consumer point of view. Uh, and then you look at sort of what is the what is the knock-on effect of things. So something I look at a lot is the the geopolitical impact of U.S.-China relationships. And you have a lot of the world's supply chain either already relocating from China or, or thinking about relocating from China. Now, this then means they're going to go to other countries and you look at what are the governance standards and infrastructure of those company, of those countries that companies now looking to, 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 to move into. And that, that's a very interesting um, migration of companies from one set of governance standards, for better or worse, into another set of governance standards um, where infrastructure may not be as developed. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but you make a really good point. And that is, you can spend all this time, you know, in, again, pick a country in country X, making sure that all the right things get put in place to make sure that all the stuff you're working on is impactful and effective. And then if the supply chain just picks up and moves somewhere else, you have to go back and do it again. Yeah. Yeah. So you have something like the, the toy industry, which is heavily dependent or used to be historically heavily focused on manufacturing in China that over the past few years is seeing a migration I mean, related to the current trade wars, but actually predating it into parts of Southeast Asia, India and Bangladesh, where they don't have decades of experience right. building supply. It's all new for them. So how, how do we help them go into these places of uncertainty? Really, really interesting. Look, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. And unless I've missed something, I really want to thank both of you for doing this. Like I said, Mark Blake, the CEO at Diginex Solutions, and Jessica Camo, you're a rock star, by the way. The head of ESG and public affairs at Diginex. You were both awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. It's a great pleasure. It's been really fun.